0: We're going to read together um, from the New Testament. We're going to read the letter of Philemon. On these Sunday evenings in July, what we've been doing really is is a kind of Bible study in Philemon. And uh, I want to take the next section of it this evening. So we'll read the whole of the letter, which comes from Paul and Timothy. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, If you are sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement, because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become both useful. now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the third in our short series in Philemon. In the first evening we looked at some of the context and where it fits in the canon of scripture and some of the issues that arise um, uh, in looking at the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon. Um, Not least the characters involved and the way in which as you look through the whole list of characters involved there you get a sense of how this all ties in um, very closely with what was going on in the address to the church in Colossians. Uh, then we were looking a bit at verses 4 to 7 last week and thinking about the triad, the three things that Paul emphasizes here we thought about the three that he normally emphasizes, faith, hope and love but how in this context the three that he emphasizes are uh, faith, love and fellowship because that's really the context in which he's speaking here and that sharing your faith in verse 6 is really about fellowship in the faith is the proper way to understand what is going on there So this evening I want to think about uh, the implications of a phrase that Paul uses which underpins what he's trying to say in this whole letter. It's a phrase which appears in verse 9 when Paul says to Philemon, Yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. And my title for this evening simply is Doing What is Right on the Basis of Love. We all have different things that motivate us, different things that drive us from time to time. And that varies according to situations. Uh, What will motivate you to get up tomorrow morning for work? Those of you that go to work, that is. Not that I would know very much about that. Is it money? Is it simply to make money to live? Is it a sense of vocation and anticipation in what you're doing? Is it for the social interaction? It's different things that motivate people on a Monday morning to get out of bed and get to work. What is your motivation for helping people in difficult situations? Is it guilt? Is it a sense that you really have to do this, a sense of obligation? Is it your disposition to be a helper, the kind of person who's willing to get involved there? Is it a sense of responsibility that if you don't do it, who's going to do it? What's your motivation for doing what's right? It could be fear. Paul makes reference to that in Romans chapter 13, where he talks about the the apparatus of the state being placed there um, as a sword against those who do what is wrong. And if you do what's right, then you won't have to be afraid of it. Is it decency Um, that you're just that kind of person who would like to try and do what is right, and it's a sense of common decency for you, as opposed to fear of being caught out of not doing what is right? Is it a sense of responsibility? What is it that would motivate you to want to do what is right in any particular situation? Well, it's quite clear that the Apostle Paul wants Philemon to do what is right in this particular situation, verse 9, on the basis of love. That's the basis of his appeal to Philemon, to do what is right. And I want to think a bit about that um, for a while this evening. First of all, by asking the question, why is doing the right thing sometimes difficult? I suppose there's a one-word answer to that, and that is that we're sinful human beings and we choose very often to do the wrong thing. The situation we have here is an interesting one. Uh, We have Onesimus, who appears to be a slave, who's either run away or has failed in his task for his master. He has either found Paul by seeking him out Uh, to act as an intermediary for him, or he's found him because he got himself into trouble and ended up in trouble and bumped into Paul that way. We're not entirely quite sure, but it certainly appears according to verse 10 of the letter to Philemon that Onesimus has become converted. That that idea of becoming a son to Paul is the kind of language Paul uses very often to speak about someone who has been converted and joined him in his work. And very clearly he's dear to Paul. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. He's very useful to me. And he talks about sending him back in verse 12. He says, I'm sending you back my very heart. So Onesimus has now become very close and important to Paul. However, despite how close he is to Paul and how dear he has become to Paul, Paul is going to do the right thing by Philemon. He's going to send him back. And it's clearly the right thing that Onesimus return to Philemon, even though Paul, as he says in verses 13 and 14, would love to keep him and would love to have him stay and help him in his work. It might be a little difficult for Paul to do that, losing someone who's clearly dear to him and useful to him in a situation where he's unsure of his own future and under house arrest. But sending Onesimus back to Philemon isn't going to be particularly costly for Paul, but it is the right thing to do, and he's going to do the right thing. Paul's not going to presume on Philemon's agreement. He doesn't seem to presume on people. I say that as a a bin robber who confessed to presuming on my neighbor last Sunday morning by nicking his bins and bringing them into church. And those of you who were here would understand the references to that. But in truth, there's nothing more irritating than people presuming for you and presuming that you will want to do the right thing. It can be very irritating. For example, the comment from a brother, I just borrowed your drill, I knew you wouldn't mind. And you're saying, what, my new one, the one I bought to replace the one you wrecked, which I was too decent to point out to you that you wrecked? Or the person who says to you, I invited so-and-so to the party, I knew you wouldn't mind. What? Them? That person who slags me off and humiliates me at every turn? If you're one of those people who presumes that other people will want to do the right thing as you see it, stop presuming. It could be very painful. But Paul is not presuming on Philemon's cooperation, even though he knows him well and could get away with it. He could write to Philemon and simply tell him what he's doing. But the length to which he's going here is significant. He's not simply sending Philemon down the road. Paul is in Rome. Philemon is in southern Turkey. Somebody has to pay for the trip. It's going to take quite a while, but it's the right thing to do. And Philemon must be given his place, and Paul must not presume to act without Philemon's approval. As I said, it may be a little difficult for Paul, losing someone who's clearly dear to him and useful to him, but he's going to do the right thing. But sending Onesimus back isn't hugely costly to him. It is simply the right thing to do. But doing the right thing isn't always easy because, in truth, life is full of complicated and, at times, unpleasant choices. Doing the right thing could create a deep vulnerability for us or could put us at a disadvantage to other people. Doing the right thing can even sometimes be confused with doing the right thing. For example, when is putting up with bad behaviour the right thing in terms of patience, which may be the right thing to do, and when is it the wrong thing because it ignores or denies what is just and right? Parents often struggle with that question, as do others. Knowing the right thing can be difficult for all kinds of reasons. Knowing what is the right thing can be difficult. Sometimes doing the right thing is to say... Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, as Paul says in Galatians 3. Sometimes doing the right thing is to put someone out of fellowship and have nothing to do with them, as he instructs the church in 1 Corinthians 5. Sometimes doing the right thing is forgiving and accepting. And that's the case here for Philemon. For Philemon there is a sense that doing the right thing in his situation is not necessarily going to be easy. The whole structure of this letter echoes, apparently, a very well-known contemporary approach at the time of Paul. An approach to trying to persuade someone of your argument. And the style of writing, apparently, indicates that Paul was using, very deliberately, a persuasive approach with Philemon. And it isn't going to be easy for Philemon. He's got a whole host of issues that he has to address when Onesimus is returned to him by Paul. The issue of forgiveness. Clearly, the implication in what Paul says in verse 17 to 19 is that Onesimus owes something. Not least an explanation. There's the issue of authority. If Philemon is the master in this situation, Goodness knows how many other servants or slaves he has. And what's the implication to his authority in accepting Onesimus back and forgiving him? There may be issues for the whole community, the community of the church, because many other people may have servants or slaves in the life of the church. It would have been very common in those days. And this may raise profound questions for them as to what kind of person Philemon is. It may raise issues of leadership. There's reason to believe that Philemon was a leader in one of the churches in that region. And he may feel that he's threatened or undermined in some way by having to take this particular course of action and having to embrace someone that naturally and normally he would be disciplining. Sometimes doing the right thing isn't easy. And it wasn't going to be easy for Philemon, I suspect. And it isn't always easy for us. And truthfully, knowing what the right thing is, isn't always easy either. But one of the things that's clear out of this passage is that it is right to do the right thing on the basis of love. Paul is up front. He says to Philemon, I could instruct you to do the right thing. I could instruct you to have Onesimus back and greet him as a brother. And how many of us have ended up doing the right thing through gritted teeth. At school, involved in a playground fight, if you were that kind of person. And the teacher breaks it up and says, right now, shake hands. And you shake hands through gritted teeth. Or worse, at home, when mother or father says, kiss and make up. And you kiss through gritted teeth. Paul could instruct Philemon to do the right thing. He could write an open letter to the church, which would be read out in church and bring Philemon to the front and bring Onesimus to the front. And Philemon, through gritted teeth, might just have to embrace Onesimus, whether he likes it or not, because he would be caught in the situation. But if Paul was that kind of manipulator, it really wouldn't matter whether Philemon did it through gritted teeth or not, because ultimately Paul would get Onesimus back pretty quickly, I would have thought. But Paul makes a lot of Philemon's love. We noticed that last week. He makes a lot of Philemon's love for all the saints. He specifically makes reference to that in verse 5. I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And he returns to it in verse 7. He says, your love has given me great joy and encouragement. Philemon is clearly a very reputable man and a model within the life of the church. Now what Paul does is to challenge Philemon, and I think it is a challenge for him, to take Onesimus back as a brother because it's the right thing to do and to do it on the basis of love, not obligation. Philemon might have decided that the right and correct way to receive Onesimus back was by some measured punishment. After all, if he had other servants, there could be a dangerous precedence set here. Anarchy could set in in the household. Paul would be well aware of the issues, but he's also well aware of the genuineness of Onesimus' conversion and of the absolute necessity of Philemon recognizing him as a brother and forgiving him rather than punishing him in this situation. But Philemon can only do these things meaningfully if he can make the link between his fellow believers, whom he loves deeply, who have never caused him any grief, and his love for a new brother who has been the source of pain. Maybe Paul has been reflecting on the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. Maybe Paul's simply applying that well known story that Jesus told and thinking of Philemon finding himself in the situation here of being the older brother, which in a sense he is, the one who has been in Christ longer. And yet it's possible for the older brother who has so much privilege and so much security to be the one who finds it hard to love. Paul has been reflecting possibly on how difficult it can be to accept someone about whom you've become resentful and suspicious. And Paul would understand this because it was a big thing for the church in Jerusalem to embrace and love Saul of Tarsus who had been persecuting them. And having some of their number put to death. Whether there are specific incidents in Paul's mind or not. The story that Jesus told or his own experience in Jerusalem. Paul recognizes that for the long term good of the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. And the rest of the Christian community. Philemon needs to see that the motivator for him here is love. A copying of the love of Christ. Not duty. Because that won't last long enough. Not obedience to a command, because he could be resentful against Paul as a consequence. Not obligation as a leader in the church, because he's no choice. But something that allows him liberty and freedom to engage in this whole exercise meaningfully, and further set a model as a leader. Love. One other obvious question. Why is it important to do the right thing on the basis of love? I think the answer lies in verse 20 in Paul's comments there. In verse 20, Paul says, I do wish, brother, that I might have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Those phrases, in the Lord and in Christ, suggest that the challenge for Philemon is to be Christ-like, to behave like one In Christ in this situation. The reason it matters, doing the right thing on the basis of love, is because it reflects the work and nature of Christ. Scripture makes it very clear that the motivation behind our salvation and the death of Christ is not obligation and duty on the part of God, but love. It's not that having created us and left open the possibility of our relationship with him going wrong that God feels deeply obliged to put things right and that Christ died on the cross. It's not that being the only one who could take our place and bear the weight of justice and just wrath Christ had to take our place out of a sense of duty. It's not as if everybody in the courts of heaven were coming up and saying it has to be you, it has to be you, it's your duty. It's clear But the motivation behind the incarnation and the atoning death of Christ on the cross is love. Love for the undeserving. Radical and indiscriminate love. And I think Paul is saying to Philemon that doing the right thing on the basis of love matters because it is at the heart of being a Christian. Bearing Christ's name. Seeking to be Christ's disciple. There are many problems in getting our heads around this. I recognize that. Many years ago, some theologians developed a concept of situation ethics. The basic idea was that they said that whatever the situation you found yourself in, the response had to be love. And basically, they were right. That seems to me to be the implication of what Paul is saying here in Philemon. However, in practice, they were wrong. Because they used the concept of love as a means of overturning the concepts of right and wrong. So you didn't say that something was right or wrong. You didn't ever censure someone for what they were doing. You simply loved and demonstrated love. And love became a means of not having to reprimand or disagree or censure or be seen to oppose. And sometimes it feels that when you talk about love in the way I am this evening... It makes it more difficult for people to think about issues of justice or even punishment, and that should not be so. As I indicated earlier, Paul, the great writer on the subject of love, wasn't afraid to call a spade a spade and to discipline and rebuke when necessary. However, when something was clearly right to do, Paul wanted it done on the basis of love, not simply for the sake of duty or obedience, but because that's what it meant to be in Christ so much for Philemon and the struggle that he was going to face of doing what was right on the basis of love what about me what about you we leave here this evening having read this passage of scripture challenged to want to do the right thing and challenged to want to do the right thing on the basis of love not simply on some moral principle. What will that mean? What self examination will that entail for me? What will determine the priorities in any given situation? When will it be right to do the right thing in love? When will it be right to rebuke? And are they different? Let me give you two very simple rules that might be helpful in thinking about this. The first one is this. If there is a good example in Scripture, follow it. And the second one is, ask the question, is this a Pharisee or a publican situation? Two simple tests which help us discern what the right thing to do is and therefore enable us to do the right thing on the basis of love. If there's a good example in Scripture, follow it. Not all the examples in Scripture are good. Right from the very beginning, the examples of Abraham and Sarah, who appear in Hebrews chapter 11 as great examples of the faith and what it means to put your trust in God, are also at times people whose example you definitely should not follow. It's not a good thing for a husband to pretend that his wife is really his sister simply to save his own skin. And it's not a good thing for her to agree to do it. Clearly, some of the examples are not great. It's not a great thing to laugh when God makes a promise. But there are many good examples. Not every example we have of Moses is good. It's not a good thing to go killing Egyptians, or anybody else for that matter. But there are many good things that Moses does that we can follow. same is true of David the whole way through the scripture. There are people who set for us, Examples of good judgment, of knowing what is right, and seeking to do it, and to do it out of love. Not least from Jesus. So if there's a good example that approximates to your kind of situation, or your challenge, or the challenges that you face in the week that lies ahead, ask yourself, can these examples be applied, and then follow them. That's why they're given to us. That's why this is not simply a matter of Here are a set of principles, but here is a story. Here is a life situation. Two people, one called Philemon, one called Onesimus. Watch that life situation develop. See what you can learn from it. See what examples you can put into practice. And if there's a good example in Scripture, follow it. The second thing is, ask the question, is this a Pharisee or a publican situation? Jesus made very clear distinctions between how he was going to treat Pharisees and publicans according to their attitude. He made a distinction between those who should know better and those who genuinely struggled to do what was right. One got put in their place, the other got his approval. I think he was right in both situations, but he behaved differently. I think, for example, of the story of the Pharisee and the publican publican praying in public you can read it in Luke chapter 18 and Luke tells us that Jesus was taking on those who were confident in their own righteousness and he tells this story and clearly publicly shames those who observed this practice Pharisees who stood in the public place and prayed to God and thanked God that they were so good and not like bad sinners like publicans and Jesus publicly takes them down a peg or two that was the right thing to do And Jesus remarks on the publican who stands there in humility and seeks God's mercy and forgiveness. One goes away humbled and the other goes exalted and Jesus has completely changed what everybody expected to happen. And that was the right thing to do in that situation. I think of the incident at the home of the Pharisee called Simon. You can read about that in Luke chapter 7. The man who invited Jesus for a meal. And at the meal a woman who had led a sinful life an immoral woman, comes and anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and with perfume and wipes them with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee is annoyed. He thinks this is indecent, which in the cultural context probably was verging on indecency. But Jesus knows what is the right thing to do here. And he challenges the Pharisee about his lack of love publicly in his own home. And he commends this immoral woman. And tells her that her sins are forgiven. There are judgments we have to make. And sometimes when we're trying to work out what is the right thing to do in this situation. Is being a Christian, does being a Christian mean that I love in this particular kind of way in this situation. Judgments have to be made. And if there isn't a clear example to follow that you can model your life on or your particular situation on in scripture then sometimes we have to make the kind of Pharisee public in judgment. And that's not in contrast to love. It's an expression of it. The wonderful reality is that there will be both Pharisees and publicans in heaven. Because Jesus died for them all. And even the Pharisees who needed to be rebuked could turn out to be a Nicodemus. And some of the publicans who prayed humbly maybe didn't really mean it. But God knows. So let's try and refresh the Lord's heart by doing what is the right thing on the basis of love this week in whatever situation you find yourself. Let's take a moment just to reflect on this passage quietly and then we're going to sing a hymn together. bring our time to a close with this hymn. Light has dawned that ever shall blaze. Darkness flees away. Christ the light has shone in our hearts, turning night to day. We proclaim him King of Kings.